Welcome to the American Democracy Lab. I'm your host, Alan Lambert. Today, we're joined by an incredibly interesting scholar and activist, Nate Hagens. He's something of a Renaissance man with strong interest not only in environmental science, but also other fields, including social psychology, the media, and even neuroscience. During our talk, we discuss how we can get people to broaden their perspective and develop genuine interest in protecting natural resources, not only for their own in-group, but for everyone else as well. It's a really interesting discussion. Nate, welcome to our podcast. Glad to be here, Alan. Excellent. So let me begin with um, giving you a little chance to um, talk about you know, the types of things that you do. And one of the things that I've learned is that you regard yourself as a systems scientist. So tell our listeners a little bit of uh, what that is and why it's important to our democracy and future. Well, real quickly, I used to work on Wall Street and I got interested in oil and the environment and the human brain. And 20 years ago, I got so interested that I quit and I started learning about how the entire system fits together. We have to understand energy and climate change and neuroscience and anthropology and economics and money and individual and aggregate human behavior and how it fits together to describe the human ecosystem. And it does fit together. Our society right now rewards reductionist expertise. As a professor, you're, you're aware of this. We have lots of experts on individual disciplines, but rarely do we fly up high enough and look down at the topography of our situation and how the map of everything fits together. So as a systems thinker, as a systems analyst, we look at how all these things fit together in order to have a, a clearer path of what the future holds. Yeah, interesting. Our, the deans at Washington University refer to this as uh, are the professors being siloed yeah, in their labs. Exactly. So I, exactly. I know of what you speak. So tell uh, Riff a little bit more about the human system and how that might relate to, say, the uh, climate and energy. Most of us focus on finance, the stock markets, our jobs. Uh, and I think most people now today are aware that our society faces multiple challenges. And we saw that with the polarization in the election. There was a uh, cultural anthropologist named Marvin Harris who designed the concept of cultural materialism. And he described it as infrastructure, uh, three, three different overlapping uh, uh, layers. Infrastructure, which is the environment, the health of uh, the ecosystems, the energy and material uh, flows into a human culture. And on top of that was the structure, which is the politics and the institutions and the rules. And on top of that was the superstructure, which was the religion and science and art and storytelling and cultural memes. And so I think a lot of people today are focused on those latter two areas. When I've focused our work on the infrastructure, which is what is supporting this point in time in our history. And the two big things are the environment and most environmental uh, economics classes teach that the economy or the environment is part of the human economy, when in reality, it's the opposite. It's the economy is a fully owned subset of the environment. And then the other piece is energy. We, uh, as a culture, are energy blind. And most people 
are completely oblivious to how our how energy underpins nature, energy underpins human societies, and especially energy underpins our modern high throughput, high consumption lifestyles. So this concept of energy blindness. So can you give us a couple concrete examples of that? Yeah, we're energy blind in in four ways. Number one is we, like I just said, we we forget or we're we're unaware or we're untaught how energy underpins our society. Number two is we're unaware of how powerful energy is and how most of our energy, which is fossil energy, is declining and depleting. And number three is we don't realize that a joule doesn't equal a joule. Uh, like a solar panel doesn't create the same benefits to society that a barrel of oil would. And then the fourth is that we neglect to see the the impacts on nature from our energy use. But here's here's one example that anyone listening to this could find on the internet themselves. One barrel of oil, which we pay $60 right now in the open market, has 5.7 million BTUs worth of energy, which translates to 1,700 kilowatt hours worth of work. And that contrasts, Alan, to you or I doing work all day long, generating 0.6 kilowatt hours of work. So one barrel of oil for $60 does four and a half years of human labor. And the average American consumes with both directly and indirectly with the stuff we import from China, around 70 barrel of oil equivalents of fossil energy every year. So this massively subsidizes our current high consumption lifestyles. And yet, and yet, even in the academy, we focus merely on the cost of extracting the oil from the ground, which might be $50 or something like that. We don't think about the tens of millions of years that it took to form Mother Nature to create this substance that we're pulling out of the ground 10 million times faster than it was sequestered, as as one example of energy blindness. I'm going to assume that the answer to this question is yes, but maybe you'll surprise me. So this energy blindness, are there cultural differences or uh, across nations? Are some nations more blind than others? And if so, why is that? That's a great question. I've never been asked that question, but I I think the answer is absolutely yes. And the the countries that are more – okay, so until – Until the 18th century and especially the 19th century, human energy was the energy we got from the sun and from our muscle labor and animal labor. And we were kind of running out of places to go. So we started farming vertically instead of horizontally. We started drilling under the ground. And so those nations that were able to add more fossil carbon and hydrocarbon to their economies became more and more energy blind to what was really happening. They conflated our wealth and productivity to human cleverness or technology alone. Uh, When that was important, it was subsidized by this huge bolus of fossil productivity that we also didn't pay anything or nearly anything for the, uh, the environmental cost. 
So some countries like India, for example, per capita use a tiny fraction of the energy that the average American does. Like 80% of Indian population is working directly or closely to agriculture. So they are much less energy blind as a nation because they have to use human and animal labor a lot more than we do, where many of us have our houses and we are kind of living lifestyles at materially equivalent levels of kings and queens of old, where we have Amazon delivery trucks uh, bring us cool little stuff we ordered two days ago right to our houses. And all we think about is how much dollars that cost us. We don't think about the amount of finite non-renewable energy that has CO2 attached to it in our daily decisions. We have lots to talk about, but I, I did want to just follow up on one more thing about this energy blindness. So listeners of a certain age may remember or at least have read about you know, this growing awareness in the United States, at least in the late 1950s, early 1960s, about Americans not being very environmentally conscious. And certainly Rachel Carson's book played a large role in that. Do you think it's true that Americans began to be aware of this, their blindness, say, in the 1960s or 70s? Or would you take a more pessimistic view and say, we're, we're, no, we're actually still pretty blind about all of this? Well, I teach college as as you do. I think college students are very aware of what's happening to the environment. So we are no longer ecology blind in this country at least, but uh wealth and 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 leisure, you know, contributes to our morality on these issues. I think we're incredibly energy blind still. I, I think this country and this culture, it's not just us, um, you know, China, uh, Australia, Europe. Also, people recognize that oil and gas and coal are important commodities and that we need them in our economy somehow. But they don't realize that we're living during this one-time carbon pulse. We're in a few hundred years, we're extracting what Earth took 10 to several hundred million years to accumulate in Earth's battery, not only energy, but a lot of non-renewable materials like fossil water aquifers, copper, uh, you know, things like that. So I think environmentally, we are fortunately becoming aware of what we're doing. I think on an energy and material standpoint, we are still quite naive about this. And, and this is really important because the link between energy and climate change is that we use 17 terawatts worth of energy on a continual basis as a global economy. That means 17 trillion watts, which means that we have all the time lit up on the planet the equivalent of 170 billion 100-watt light bulbs, okay? That's what humanity uses. And over 80% of that is powered by fossil carbon and hydrocarbons. And to solve climate change, we're going to have to shrink that amount of energy, uh, that amount of fossil energy. But energy is required for every single commodity, every single good and service in our economies. There is not a single product that contributes to GDP in our economies that didn't first need an energy conversion to create, to refine, to transport, to recycle, et cetera. Energy is in every step of the economic process. 
So to solve climate change, the you know a lot of the solutions that are discussed in the media right now, eat less meat, buy an electric car, install solar panels, they aren't about using less. They're just about using a different sort of energy. And so ultimately, this is where this discussion ties back into democracy and the social contract is we we can't continue to use more and more energy if we're concerned about the environment and you know climate change and the oceans etc so what does this mean about how we live our lives and go through our daily routines uh, with potentially using less energy the Sierra Club, I believe their motto is something to the effect of think globally and act locally. And it's my understanding is that they have that motto in part because, you know, sometimes you think about these things as a global level, at the global level, it can sometimes be overwhelming or there's a potential for people to throw up their hands literally or metaphorically and say, what could I do? I'm just one person. And I guess the intent here is to have people be aware of these global issues, but to focus more narrowly on what they can do. Now, that's just one perspective. I wonder uh, what your thoughts about that is that do you think the uh, Sierra Club is making a mistake by shifting people's attention towards being more uh, specific or local? Or are you on board with that sort of balancing of thinking globally, but then shifting people's attention and, and, and actions towards a more specific aim? I think we need to let a million flowers who care about the future bloom, and they all can bloom in different ways. Um, at the end of the day, it depends what we care about. If we care about climate change, we have to think globally and act globally, full stop. If the United States would follow the, the, the Paris Accord and reduce our admissions and do everything perfectly, and the rest of the world didn't do it, it wouldn't matter ultimately because the emissions globally will be the same. So I tell my students, I have a long list of uh, at the end of the semester when I teach my class about how all this fits together and the challenges humans face, they're expecting me to say, you know, buy solar panels and recycle and all these things. But almost all of the recommendations I give them as individual humans pertain to their brain and their behavior. Uh, because we are living at an amazing and a perilous time. And yet the, the story is unbelievably complex. But the answers and the gut feel of it all is, is relatively simple. We've consumed beyond our means for several generations uh, there's a bill coming due, and the answers don't have to be disastrous. Once basic needs are met, the best things in life are free. If you remember, Alan, think back to the, the best 10 experiences of your life, my bet is that very few of them would have been very energy and material intense. It would have been about nature or family or loved ones or your cats or, or all these things. And so we're caught in this conspicuous consumption treadmill where we're comparing ourselves to others on our culture, advocating kind of material pecuniary consumption. And I, I think in addition to causing climate change and resource depletion and other things, we're, we're gradually having less and less meaning in our lives. Mm. And so I think ultimately the answers to these things are we're going to have to gradually or not so gradually replace 
financial metrics as what our success vectors are to uh, a a diversity of social capital, which is our our relationships, our friends, built capital, which is our our structures, natural capital, which is the health of our ecosystems, uh, and human capital, which is knowledge uh, and skills. Uh, instead of parsing all of the rich texture of our ancestral lives into one denominator, dollars. So I, I think the answer to your question, long answer short, uh, we're going to need both global and local. And I think the responses to the upcoming crises, we need uh, pathways at an institutional government level. We need things to do as communities and Individuals need to have a shift in consciousness about what it means to be alive during these times and and maybe shift their behavior towards less material throughput. So um, I myself am a social psychologist and uh, I've been teaching in academia for uh, more years than I care to remember. And you teach at the university level as well. So like to see what you could say a little bit about the tie-in with psychological dynamics uh, defined broadly. So how do some of the issues that you've been talking about so far, how does this relate to what we know about psychological theory and process? That's an excellent question. And here's why. A lot of people think we have a political problem or an environmental problem or an energy and resource problem. We do, but all these stem from Uh, a core fundamental issue, which is we have a human brain mismatch with our evolved wiring as 300,000 years of our evolutionary ancestry as humans with a modern Star Wars culture uh, that is resource rich and high technology, which is able to hijack our limbic systems and, and make us get the same feelings that our ancestors got but in a way that's not sustainable and probably not healthy. So, you know, the, our evolutionary psychology, we spent most of our formative time in bands of 100, 150 people in, in Savannah of Africa. And so we go through our, our days today just trying to get those same neurotransmitters and endocrine feelings uh, that our successful ancestors did. And this misfires in, in very surprising ways. Here's a few. So first of all, we're biological organisms with finite lifespans. So we care very much more about the present than we do about the future. In psychology, this is called impulsivity or in economics, it's called the discount rate. So we end up making plans. We think we want to save the environment. We want to lose weight. We want to exercise more. uh, And we make all these grand plans to start tomorrow on these things. But then we wake up tomorrow and tomorrow has become today. And so we end up procrastinating on these things. We don't really change until there's uh, an impetus for change. So a lot of these things get, we kick the can, both individuals as a culture. Another part of the psychological dynamic is in a uh, culture with a high energy material throughput and with marketing and Madison Avenue and advertising, the wanting becomes stronger than the having. 
which is an amazing thing. The dopamine reward neurotransmitter superhighway in our brain uh, was functional in our evolutionary past because we could see a little flash of color by the riverbed or a movement in the bushes, and this helped our survival. Well, today what ends up happening with all this advertising and stuff is we shop to increase our status and we want to buy a Gucci purse or these new Adidas or this new car that's better than our neighbor's. And this gives us these neurotransmitters that make us feel good. But once we buy the stuff, then we get happy for a very short time. And then our dopamine levels plunge back to baseline. And then we want something again, which is why my storage shed eight miles from here, I haven't opened it in three years. And it's like jam packed full of my prior life. <laughs> so we, we end up consuming and accumulating things when what we're really trying to do is accumulate flows of experiences in the moment. And the externality of that is full storage sheds and an atmosphere in oceans full of CO2. Yes, it, that's I, I do like um, that way of thinking about it. I mean, it's one thing for to say that to try to convince people to give up their possessions and their that they've come to uh, love and appreciate. But as you say, we do get that that uh, brief but tangible boost of excitement or positive affect when we buy something new. And it's so it's um, it's one thing to to say that we mm -hmm. should stop or we should curtail our conspicuous consumption of goods. But, you know, it feels good when we have our, a new car or new sneakers or whatever it happens to be. So um, so, Nate, are, th are there any other psychological dynamics that you see as relevant here? Yeah, there's one huge one, and that is that because of our ancestral past, we are incredibly tribal. We care about the St. Louis Cardinals or liberalism or Donald Trump or climate change or the Green Bay Packers uh, or a certain religion. And then we form these bonds with people in that group on, on social media or whatever. And we end up overly favoring our tribe and ostracizing other tribes that disagree with us. And this is a fundamental carryover from our evolutionary past. And a friend of mine recently said that tribalism is destiny, humanity is optional. And I think that's quite apt because if we are to navigate just the current political polarization in our country, let alone energy depletion and climate change, we absolutely have to have a conversation with people who disagree with us. And if the us is only 10% of the, uh, uh, the population or 2%, and we hang out with people who agree with us, nothing is going to change. We're not going to be able to answer these harder questions. So somehow... We have to transcend our, our individual and collective biology, or at least bend it towards a common purpose where we are acting somewhat cohesively towards uh, the greater good of, the, of, of, of a survivable future, to be honest. And this will require us, you know, I'm not asking people to give up their identity. You keep your identity, but you are mature enough to suppress that so that you can sit at a table with people who disagree with you and have a conversation about these weighty issues. So this, of, of all the evolutionary carryovers, it's our tribalism of, of in-group, out-group focus, which, which really is 
a, a big hurdle for us right now. The weaponization of misinformation and disinformation on social media just highlights these, pulls these hot buttons of who we are as evolved organisms because people self gravitate towards the things that they want to hear and that they believe, whether they're true or not. Truth doesn't matter in the very short term because in the very short term, my own identity and who I identify with and our shared values, all those things matter more than the truth. And this is, you know, can be directly traced to our ancestral environment. So I think that is a very relevant piece, especially uh, in this conversation about democracy. So you had used the term weaponization. Actually, the psychologist Paul Bloom at Yale University has talked about the weaponization of empathy. And long story short, he has talked about, as you just said, the uh, human beings are very tribal. They're very attuned to in-group, out-group biases. Uh, and human beings can be empathic, but they tend to have a strong tendency to be empathic towards their in-group, not the out-group. And so, as Bloom has talked about, that you can use empathy in ways yes. that are for social good, yes. but it could also be used to weaponize, for example, aggression against the out-group. In essence, for example, convincing people, how dare this group do this to us? So you can galvanize the in-group together against a perceived sin of, of the out-group. But, but in any event, I relate strongly to what you say, that that is, if there's one fun fundamental truth, I would say, in social, in social psychology is that I completely agree. Human beings are incredibly tribal, but I think there is hope. I think we can encourage people, if nothing else, to expand their in-group boundaries to so it's not so narrow, so they can include uh, people in the in-group that would be uh, at least somewhat dissimilar from, from them, and maybe over time, people who are not at all like them at all. Well, it's, I mean, think about this hypothetical example. Imagine regatta of alien spaceships landed on Earth and aliens were attacking Earth from outer space and on Earth. Our citizens in every country would unite to defend our planet from aliens. We would absolutely do that. And we would cooperate and we would have curfews and we would consume less and we would sacrifice and we would do everything. Unfortunately, that's a hypothetical example. So how do, we, how do we get that sort of response to existential risks like climate change and sixth mass extinction and these other things that don't feel emotionally real to us because they, we can cognitively understand them, but the emotional response to them, they're way in the future, or at least the bad impacts are, are way in the future. So yeah, it's, it's a puzzle. And at the core of this is, at the core of democracy, is education, an educated and engaged public. And not only education, but the ability to have conversations with each other to make sense of our situation. And, that, and that's, what, that's why I do conversations like this. I think we need a lot more people to wake up, understand our, uh, our, our place and our time in history, and play a role in our collective future. Great. You know, Nate, it's been a pleasure, and I know we could have covered way, way more ground if we had more time. But before we sign off, I just want to ask, is there anything else you'd like to encourage our listeners to learn more about or any, any last words you'd like to pass along? You can find out more information on all these things. It's a, it's a fire hose. Um, our website is energyinourfuture.org. Closing words, well, we are not alive at a normal time. And uh, so I invite your listeners to play some role. In, in our future and learn more about these things. 
Well, thanks again for joining us, Nate. And so it's been a pleasure. And I know we could have covered far more ground if we had more time, but I really appreciate you joining us. And for our listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe to the American Democracy Lab to hear more from other expert guests who will be addressing issues affecting our American democracy.